Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, to all intents and purposes, it looked like Ireland had a very expansive game plan. We saw a lot of passing out through the backs and a lot of play in the 15 metre channels, which would have been uh, previously not the kind of thing we'd expect from a, the Joe Schmidt drilled Irish team. But you have a quite specific idea about what you thought their game plan was. Would you care to explain it to us? Well, I thought that Ireland played what was in front of them, which I think they should always do. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and what I mean by that is I think that Ireland Ireland looked to me like a team that was coached by a defence coach. And what he did was looked at how do they defend and then how do I break that down? So he sort of reverse engineered Wales's defence. And from my interpretation... He went, so how Wales defended under Sean Edwards, who is now gone as their defence coach, was what they wanted to do is get their front five around either side of the rook in the sort of the pillar in the A position, where you're in heavy traffic. There's not that much, uh, you have to run to get there, but uh, there's not that much uh, lateral movement. And typically the guys that are running at you are like the heavy traffic. It's basically CJ Stander and Paulie like fucking trucking it up for 70 centimetres. Then you want to have, in the midfield, you want to have always your centres connected. So you always want to have 12 and 13 defending beside each other. And ideally, you want to have 10, 12, 13 def defending in a three. So moving, like defending beside each other, keeping their spaces and then moving up and down. And then you want to have your back row linking those two. Now, you can sort of make a decision with your back row. Do you want to have uh, like one guy in close all the time, one guy always in the middle? So like if you look at how McCaw and Duzatoir and Dan Levy defend as playing as open side, they took up a position in the center of the pitch, uh, like basically sort of moving either side of the post, depending on where the play is. And they always make tackles coming down that channel, but they scan there. So what they're doing is they're making themselves available to make tackles on their centers and like the dangerous guys. They're linking the backs and the forwards, but what they're also looking to do is opportunities to make turnovers. So you've maneuverable, like if, if a tackle gets made on either side of the pitch, you have an opportunity to to pounce in and go for the grab, right? And reading Kieran Reid's book, when himself, Kano and McCaw played, they'd sort of space themselves out to make big plays. So like McCaw typically take the middle, I suppose Kano on the right, reading the left on, on your typical breakdown. And like they'd they look to win battles, you know, so Reed talks about the 2015 World Cup final and like smoking Izzy Falau early. And then I always remember when uh, Brad Thorne played for Leinster against Ulster in the Heineken Cup final, he just spent the entire time going around the pitch drilling Stephen Ferris. He just went like, right, you're the tough guy. Oh, I'm a tough guy. I'm going to bet that I am tougher than you. And he was. <laughs> Uh, and he just spent the entire day like drilling Ferris and rooks and in tackles, right? So you sort of, there's different ways to do it, but going back to how Wales wanted to set up, fundamentally that's what they did, right? So in early in the match, like all the way through the match, Ireland looked to run at Faletau, Tipperick, and Wainwright. Now, 
Wainwright makes very few tackles for number six. He's involved, sort of. He gets there too late. He just doesn't have a tackling instinct in his body, which is a bad look for a number six. He obviously had a very good World Cup. Um, but if you think of what Gaddy did with his classic back row, he had Warby at seven, uh, Chopper Lydiot at six, and Faletau at eight. And Lydiot just made tackle, 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 tackle. And what... That meant in the first few minutes, like, so it was like Ireland play ostensibly like they play under Joe Schmidt, where you got like a one-out pod running close into the rook, and then they go wide after a stage. But that's not actually what Farrell's team did. They they used a one-out pod a lot, but what they wanted to do was run at Faletau, run at Tipperick, run at Faletau, get Wainwright in to make a tackle. So basically, when they said play what's in front of you, that's what... That's what they were looking to do. They were looking to see, where's this back row? Run at them. Run at them at the heavy traffic. Make these guys make tackles. And once you've done that, because then what happens is, where do your backs go? And typically what your backs have to do is, 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 is concertina inwards, or, or else you're left with a situation where your front five guys are defending in the middle of the pitch. So Ireland's first break of the match was with Stockdale where he got on the outside, that's slow rook ball. Like Murray had made the breaks. Ireland had gone down the blind side. And what they'd done was run at Faletau, run at Tipperick, run at Wainwright. And they'd gone looking down the blind side because that's where the Welsh guys were. So the Welsh backer was all sucked over on the right-hand side of the pitch. Murray then made a break. We Ireland reacted slowly to the fact that the halfback was gone. Stander went in at halfback and it didn't matter. And Stander passed to, to Keane Healy. But the fact was the back row were gone. And Sexton must be giving him a shout going, out the back, out the back, it's on, it's on, it's on. And so you slow rook ball, you've got like not a conventional scrum half, standard giving the pass from the base, Healy being the first receiver, and Ireland still do them on the outside because the Welsh defence is is broken. Like it, 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 it has literally been broken up because the back row aren't there to make the tackles and they're not there to connect the centres. And Ireland did that all match to the extent that like... Murray went for a little snipe off a mall in the second half. And Ireland, I think, uh, I'll try to find it. Let me see. I have a note of when it was. Like, it was on. Blah, 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 blah. It was, it was uh, like, Murray. So, five-man lineup for Ireland. Faletau and Moriarty in the mall. Ireland took it down all day to maul it and got turned over three times in the mall. Like, it got turned over four times against Scotland. Murray sniped, sucked in Tipperick. At that stage, Nick Tompkins, who's playing second centre, he's past the halfway point of the pitch. George North is the only guy who's on the right-hand side of the pitch defending for Wales in the line. And Lee Halfpenny's on that side, but he's miles back because of the threat of a kick. And that was the one where Sexton got hit by Murray. Sexton passes to Earls. North blitzes in on Earls. Everyone's going, it's Earls, you know, the vision, you know, like the, 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 well, the courage that he has pass. to make. Earls didn't have a choice. Like, he was either going to make that pass or get blitzed. Pass so was it wasn't, pass it wasn't, was it was, but it wasn't a decision for him, mm. right? It was like, it was an execution of a skill, which was great. And the pass was great. Like it was an excellent pass, but like it wasn't a decision. It was get blitz behind the gain line on your own. By giant. By, by like steamrolling George North or make, and he got blitzed anyway, but like it was lo- like get blitz with the ball behind the gain line on your own or make that pass. And he made that pass and Stockdale over on Larmer, but like, the reason it was done was because the Welsh back row was sucked in and the Welsh second centre was past the halfway point of the pitch. Now, maybe Lee Halfpenny can come up, but that's what Ireland did, to my mind. 
and it was it was it was very concentrated it was very specific it was far more sophisticated and maybe i watched in a different way but it was far more sophisticated than i gave ireland credit farrell's ireland credit for what they did against scotland now maybe they did the same thing against scotland but i think that when you know my cat or whoever goes and say, oh we want to play what's in front of us in a press conference that's i think that's what he means like we're looking for specific places to play what's in front of us but like they're not going to go and tell the scribes this is what we're doing yeah because you know like why would you why would you give away the game plan and why would you like why would you go into the detail of it because you just got to ask questions about it so and like people are happy with being told we're going to play what's in front of us they, they think it's, they think it's great <laughs> um <clears throat> And that's it for today. <laughs> <laughs> well, le- let me bring up one of the things that uh, I'd mentioned to you just before we started, that Ireland uh, made a few quite unusual exits as well, one of which uh, was the setup uh, when, uh, in the first half on the right flank, the, uh, the long kick by uh, Andrew Conway, which I think led to the, tri- to the second try we scored. Uh, and then at the start of the second half, we had another couple of like more adventurous exits. Um, was all that part of the the same game plan to keep trying to suck in back row players? Or was it a, a case of uh, trying to make Wales think twice about how we were going to, how and when we were going to box kick or how our exits were going to be executed? One in the first, well, there was one what I would categorize as an exit when Bundy made a turnover after about 12 minutes and Ireland gave the ball to Larmer. And I think in the Scottish match, Ireland tried to, Ireland just kicked away turnover ball. Whereas I think in that match, there was very determined that run turnover ball because of where Wales are going to be. And I think there was another one, there was a strange one in the second half, Bundy got it. Larmer went in at first receiver. Didn't go well because there's no kicking threat from Larmer. Mm. Well, there's not, not that there's none. But uh, it, it was an odd one. I think Ireland were quite lucky to get out of it unscathed. But I, I would have said, like, usually Murray dealt with all the kicks. They, they give it to Bundy and Bundy trucks it up and probably gets it towards the 15s. And then Murray kicks either into touch or, like, kicks a contestable, depending on... Like, Murray, Murray, but Murray does all the kicking and Murray... Excuse me, played very well. I think I think Murray got better as as the match went on. Uh, but I, I would have said by and large conventional exits. Yeah, someone someone were a bit botched. Like we were we were at the match. And the, the one that we talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, second half, beginning of the second half, they just botched it. Um, you know, when your scrum half gets pulled into a rocket, is at the bottom of it. That's not a good exit. You know, you can't pretend that that was intentional, but sometimes that happens. You know, there's nothing an awful lot you can do out of that except, you know, make, um, make the best out of what you've got and just stake ham and then return to a conventional exit strategy. Uh, you were talking about contestables earlier. I'm not the first person to mention it, I'm sure, but... Uh, Andrew Conway's performance in that game, you know, actually every realm of being a winger was outstanding. It was incredible that he wasn't man of the match. He was flawless. 
And it's kind of, it's amazing that he wasn't picked for all of last year. So, like, I think it was around this time last year or maybe just, you know, a few months more, like 13 or 14 months more. And I said towards the end of a podcast, I thought that Conway would have a really big year. Now, he sort of did. He scored three tries in the World Cup for us and he, he was like arguably Ireland's best back in the World Cup. Um, he still didn't get back for the New Zealand match. And a lot of the discussion going into this Six Nations, like Keith Earls is like the nation's sweetheart as far as wingers go. Like no one wants to say that Earls should ever be dropped. And then it was kind of because he was injured that he was dropped. And Stockdale was coming off a worldy of a season, like or a worldy of a year, having been Six Nations player at a tournament, having scored like, what, 10 tries? 10 tries. And the winning try against scoring, the All Blacks. Exactly, the winning yeah. try against the All Blacks. And you sort of go, well, geez, like, and like scoring, looking like a shark playing for Ulster. You're kind of thinking to yourself, well, you, you can't drop him, which doesn't leave you with much option. Um, and all yeah. of a sudden, like Conway gets picked. And this, to my mind, goes back to the the sort of your point, you know, that we've made in consecutive weeks about the strength of having the bench, that there's, like there's a strength and depth in Irish rugby, not in everybody, not like not in every single position, but that's there that like was never there before, and it's in more than one position where you can you can drop Keith Earls and uh, like you still have him to come in. It's like it's it's a great resource to have. Yeah, <clears throat> what do you think? I'm a big believer in the idea of big winger, small winger. So that you have you you pick wingers along the same um, splitting resources, so to speak, or splitting talents that, that you would a open side and blind side flanker. That you have a big winger and that you have a small winger, and that they give you different methods of attacking. Like right and left wing to me is relatively immaterial, um, but I think it's important that you don't have either two guys who can't turn in defense or two guys who are too small to get over the game line in the middle of the pitch. So for me, it's it's a choice between Conway or Earls. Um, and until James Lowe comes into the reckoning, I think Stockdale is big winger. Now, when James Lowe comes in, then you have, then you have a, a bigger decision to make between himself and, and Stockdale. But I think at that stage, Earls is getting on to 33, which is realistically at the end of a, a winger's lifespan. Yeah, and like if you're looking at the next World Cup and you're looking at the no, age, just next, just, just next season. Next season. Yeah, I, can you look at them in, in abstract? I don't know if you, I don't know if you can, but look, to, to go back to your question about like big winger, I suppose you'd associate a little winger with being jinkier and with being more agile, you know, so like Larmer, you could put Larmer on the wing if yeah. you wanted to go and put Addison at fullback if you wanted to have a jinky, fast, small winger, if you wanted to pick a team like that. Um, and then someone who's going to truck it up in the middle, like the big guy. Yeah, I think it's it's good. Like I'm trying to think of really like the best back three combos and best. I can't think of anything off. I can think of lots off my head, but I can't mm. think of like who'd be preeminent in that. Um like if you think of Jason Robinson and Ben Cohen, for example, big winger, small winger. Yeah, and oftentimes, oftentimes the way I think of it, it is having a winger who's capable of playing fullback on the wing and then yeah, having one like winger that. who's just capable of playing on the wing. Yeah. So like Johnny, Johnny May, May is just capable of playing on Chris, the wing. Yeah. 
I would have said Chris, Chris Ashton, Ashton, just capable of yeah. playing in the wing, whereas you pick like, you know, uh Corey Jane. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um aside from their uh the tactic with ball in hand of trying to tie up the Welsh back row. Was there anything else you thought was tactically notable about Ireland's game that was different from what we've seen before? We tried to maul pretty much every line out, uh, it seemed to me. Like we yeah. had Van der Fleer was in halfback in pretty much every line. We played a five or six uh, with Healy. We say you play a six, right? You've got Healy at the front and Furlong at the back. And then you've got Ryan, Hendy, Omani and Standard, which gives you four viable line out options of, of varying quality. Uh, in the middle so it gives you you know like they, they can double pot if they want to do but you should be able to have enough maneuverability on the ground it's odd that like you know one extra man one fewer man sorry would give you that much more movement but just the way it's set up it, it, there's a good bit of movement on the ground from Ireland Ireland don't seem the only team that's really played it was the sort of the 2010, 2011, 2012 All Blacks that just put a man up like as, as absolutely quick as they could like get in set and like the guy is up and he's he's jumping like there's no there's no sort of plant from him jumping he's just jumping it's up to the lifters to That's get him up Kieran Reid's book he talks about it. Kieran Reid is the one who sort of devised a lot of the all backs line out strategies yeah. he called the line outs and that was their key point of difference was uh, uh, just when they arrived they jumped but uh, I hadn't realised how, how much I always had thought for, for that like it was one of the second I was calling it, but it was all essentially Reed. Even when he was he was injured at times, uh, it was a job that was given to him by Graham Henry, in which he took real pride in. So it's, uh, but we don't do it. Um, we chat. But we okay. If we're mauling everything, I you mentioned three that we lost against Wales, and there was definitely four in a row that we lost against Scotland. Yeah, are we ineffective with the maul without Toner in the pack, or are we ineffective in the maul because? defending has changed and we haven't yeah i think the ref i think it's being refereed quite differently i see a lot more guys coming up the sides of walls and not being penalized for swimming like they used to um and I mean, we said before about the scotland game that some of that was <clears throat> was just bad refereeing some of those were huge and very obvious side entries which competent refereeing would have picked up. I'm not saying they're comp- incompetent referees at all times, but in that stage, they made mistakes. Uh, against Wales, I saw some swimming, and it's 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 sort of harder to pick out. It's they weren't as obvious as against Scotland, but I don't think we're as, I don't think our mauling is as polished, and I don't think uh, when I say that polished is the right word for mauling. I don't think it's as technically astute as it had been under the previous uh, coaching group. You're going back a long... Well, like, Easterby is still there. So you're going back... Are you talking about Plumtree or are you talking about, like, Fiki and Easterby I'm talking as about opposed Fiki. to Fogarty I'm Easterby. talking about Fiki and Easterby. Um, certainly, we used to have a, like a very competent line-out mall. Like, since the start, if you... These guys have only been in, in uh, the head seat. John Fogarty's only been in, in the the coaching job for two games and both games the mall has been pretty terrible 
It's been turned over seven times. Yeah. Like, and it's it's a go-to resource. So like, I, I thought when Foley was coaching the forwards under Kidney, the mall was very good. And Foley's I thought when Plumtree was doing it under Schmidt, I thought it was particularly good. Like, I think Plumtree was a brilliant forwards coach for Ireland. Um, so some something is missing. Now, I think, as, as you go saying, it, it, it's refereed, it's more lenient towards the defence. I think that the world rugby sort of have guided referees. They don't want like just maul, 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 maul and then a penalty and kick into the corner and another maul. Like they're so... They saw the World Cup just like we did. They realised like if, if you're, if you're set after you, you can just do that and win every game. Uh, the, the other thing that I noticed and I, I went and found the YouTube clip and I actually went and found the particular minute in the YouTube, the particular second in the YouTube clip was how animated... Are, like there's so much backslapping and exhortations at particular bits. And I, I've referred to this. So the YouTube clip I'm talking about is Bill Belichick addressing the Patriots before the first day of, I think it's the 2009 season. Um, and it's a sort of a, like a, a year in the life or a coach's year or something like that uh, by NFL Films, 2009. And Belichick talks... He shows them he shows them highlight reels of, of different things done well and like no one reacting to it. Mm. And he goes, Hey, look, you made a good play. He says, there you you know it's a good play. He says, no one else reacts. And then he shows a clip of a guy scoring a touchdown against Denver or something like that, or Indianapolis. And like he'd been like seven or eight guys jumping on top of him. And then he shows a one of the opposition guys on the touchline, you know, casting his eyes to heaven and he goes, That's the look. That's how you know it's a bad day. That's how you know you're here to play football. And he goes, like, look, we're not good enough to do that. He says, No one is good enough to play individually and just put on the jersey and 15 minutes and very much to my mind like I think of um Belichick as like do your job and very dry but like and he is but he also understands the value of emotion and teamwork and like Ireland had at least three massive rounds of backslapping it was like a fucking it was like the Sinn Féin party convention <laughs> fucking, you know like Without the without the rabble rousing, uh, but like it was, and it sort of sent a message out to Wales, and I think it connected. Like I think it connected. These are all intangible things. I think it connected to the crowd. I think the fact that people saw that the Irish team were excited by doing stuff well made them excited. Like I think it's like you know when. They can barely be as property guys, but like one property guy says something, and then fucking four property guys erupt into chortles, and then fucking. And then it just goes around in a circle. It's like the property laugh of like fellas just chortling away at each other. <laughs> like how wonderfully funny they are. Yeah, like yeah, you, yeah. you can see it across a room. You sort of go, ah, those lads must be in property. You know, like if they've no ties on, they must be in tech. <laughs> um, if they're all chortling at each other, they must be in property. And But it's, it's, it's a real sort of elemental human nature type of... Uh, but like purposeful, you, like you go to Belichick and like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Farrell sort of gave pretty much the same speech that Belichick did and says like, if we do something well, I want us to let them know about it. Like I want us to be able to like whooping and backslapping and like getting people engaged. Cause you go back to what Farrell said before the Scottish match and like he wanted his Ireland team to like be loved by the Irish public. Like basically yeah, it's exciting, it was a very, team, very emotional very emotional sort of objective that he had. Um, that was that was the other thing that I took from that match. Um, can I ask you then about Wales? I had the very strong impression after the game 
that Wales scored one really, really beautiful try and then kept on trying to score it for the rest of the whole match. And they looked like they were trying to play a game a bit more theoretically than than what was in front of them. And like on an extremely windy day with a fullback who you think might, who was improved under the high ball, but might have a little bit of issue, uh, like at a random, you know, wind going all directions kind of day, they never stuck it up stuck it up on top of Larmer and like they never tested us in different ways they tested us in one way which was are you ready to are you ready for our forwards to offload or like everyone to offload and do little connection passes in the midfield and like when we get in behind you can you deal with that and after a while we could I think I I talked about this in previous seasons about O'Shea and about Gregor Townsend and how they were ideological coaches like particularly in their in their early seasons with Scotland and with Italy that they they thought that the game should be played in a certain way and they wanted to sort of implement like a big picture approach and like McFarland did in early Ulster where like Ulster just like first of all things couldn't have got much worse and he just said, like, just offload, go wide, go wide, go wide, run from everywhere. All like, And my take on that was, first of all, like, he wanted them to develop those skills, but he also wanted them to sort of know that if it went wrong, they wouldn't be blamed. Like, if the outcome was mm. bad, they wouldn't be blamed for it. Really, the, the, but they had to do it. If they didn't do it, they, they would be, be blamed for it. Yeah. You can do that at club level. At international level, I don't think you can. I think you can. I think you can implement like a, an ideological change to your game. And again, talking about Kieran Reid, like when the All Blacks won it in two thousand and eleven, which took a monkey off their backs, and Hansen came in. They basically went to like structured rugby, like uh, two four two, which like everyone does now, or does a variation yeah. of it now. But like no one was doing it at the time. Like they were basically just they going invented. From, they invented. Like they were going from phase to phase to phase, and Hansen invented that style of rugby at the at the at the highest level playing with the All Blacks right so you, you, that is very unusual that you can do something like that at international level otherwise I think something like Gatti where you have a very basic strategic shape and very specific tactical instructions within that I think that's the reality of international coaching yeah so like what does that mean I don't think that's unusual I think Eddie Jones like you know what what, what does Eddie Jones do against the All Blacks he goes we want to run Manitoulangi up the middle and then go looking for Richie Moanga. That's our plan. Now, it looks more complicated than that, but it's not. Smash Manu up the middle, truck it up at Billy, go looking for Moanga. Yeah, because you find ways. You have different ways to get uh, to get at Moanga. Like, it's not just, oh, we'll just pass it to the next man and keep on passing it until somebody finds Moanga to run at. They, they know what he's going to do and they know what he's going to be after second phase, after third phase. Yeah. And there are different ways of getting the ball out to somebody who knows where he is. But I think you're absolutely right. And I think that Pivak is trying to get these guys. He has, firstly, that Gatland was there for so long, like an incredibly long time for an international coach. 13 seasons? Yeah. 12 yeah. or 13. It's very, I can't remember. It's the yeah. record anyway. He took, he was out a few sabbaticals, but yeah. he was still, he was still yeah. there. He was still picking them off at the lines. Yeah. So it's, it's a, any, any change is a big change. And Pivak is making a significant change in terms of, if you were to look at a Gatlin side and a Pivak side, not saying they'd be as far apart as they could be, but they would be very close to being opposite ends on some sort of spectrum of how to play rugby. 
I think that Pivac is trying to get time under tension and to get these players to play this way. He won't blame them for losing. But you have such a limited amount of time to do that as an international coach. Like you can't take that into a second season. They're still learning the system. And the season for an international coach is like eight games long. So I felt that what you said about kicking is, is really uh, valid when you're... Like, the ball was moving all over the place in the air when it was being kicked. I'm not sure how recognizable that was on, on television, but in you know when you're at the game, you can see the ball just going like that. It's like you know four and five yards of sideways movement in the air. Incredible amounts of movement to get under. It certainly would have been worth uh, looking at. Um, in terms of their attacking shape, I think it actually has the potential to be very threatening. But they have a couple of players, like George North, as, as Squidge Rupi said in his review of the game, George North is just so wildly out of form. It's cruel to pick him. You have, you have, those, you have those games, you have, like with Conor Murray for a long time. And Conor Murray <laughs> kept on getting picked and, and shouldn't have been getting picked for a while. And eventually it come good and people say, oh, look, he came good. He should. That doesn't mean he shouldn't have been dropped when he was playing badly. Like George North will come good probably sometime later on. But it's not it's not a punishment. Being dropped isn't a punishment. It's, it's just like it's just something that happens when they go another way with selection. So anyway, my, my point is you have Tompkins and North who are Tompkins I, I suppose has had a had a bad day at the office and is very inexperienced. Really well his first start and really is you know, almost his debut. 20 minutes against Italy is hardly test rugby. Um, so I felt that he was somebody who was sidelined and victimised quite a lot uh, in terms of both attack and defence. Who got man of the match? CJ Stander. Stander. Played very well. But it was Conway's game. But I, I thought... He was picked by a fellow monster back rower. Yeah, Quinny, shall Quinny, remain nameless. Quinny, <laughs> Quinny picked him, didn't he? Yeah, but, I, but remember, sure, I remember, I remember. But somebody, I think the Alistair Aiken or somebody pointed out that Five out of the six Six Nations man of the matches had been back rows thus far. Well, I I thought that CJ, CJ did have three really CJ noticeable really turnovers. He's great. Also, and he had three penalties, the third of which he got sent off for, and one of which I was just like, he's totally on his feet. I don't know why. Oh, he was oh, so the, unfortunate on the line. And yeah. that, that was the one. I thought Johnny Sexton was brilliant yeah I thought he was incredibly good and really what impressed me about Johnny Sexton in particular was the variety in his kicking so like I said Ireland knew how they wanted to play against Wales but at different times when it wasn't quite on to keep the ball Sexton kicked and he put in three different kicks he put in a bomb early going left to right that Conway contested on when Wales were quite narrow he then put a dink over sort of it bounced around half penny. Half penny couldn't get to it. It put Wales under pressure. And then he put a grubber through that went into touch before Stockdale could mm. get there. And each the of rolling them, grubber. Each of them were perfect. And he's not doing the same thing all the time. Like he's the variety in his game. So first of all, he got three different kicks. Second of all, he made the decision between kicking and running, keep kicking and keeping the ball, that it was the right time to kick. And like, oh, he was he was excellent. And I don't think that people necessarily give Sexton, which is incredible. I don't think people give Sexton the credit that he's due as an out half. Like, I think I've been in discussions about, like, oh, you know, when he, before he's World Player of the Year, should he get it or should Bowden Barrett get it? Oh, well, like, you know, 
Sexton's had a good year, so maybe you should pick him. But like, you'd always pick Bowden Barrett at out half. And you're there going, I'd pick Bowden Barrett at fullback if it meant getting Johnny Sexton in the team at out half. Like, I know who I'd rather have as my out half. Mm. Um, and then, like, I still think that people bracket O'Gara and Sexton together. And as decorated a career as O'Gara had, like, for me, that's it's a no-brainer. It's an absolute no-brainer. Like, Sexton is such a more such a complete player and O'Gara as good as he was wasn't right so not to fucking reopen that camp but like it's almost like it's kind of hiding in plain sight because you've got used to it but oh yeah like himself and James brilliant. Ryan could be man of the match in every game the guy was brilliant Ireland win the guy, like and uh, I, I Eddie just, Jones was talking about this about a kicking Ireland kicking Peter Riley mentioned in his article on Sunday Times there last Sunday about how um Ireland had become predictable in Joe Schmidt's last season because they'd kick less and less. Um, and kicking is so, it's such a valuable aspect of the game. And it's not, it became incredibly unfashionable. When every time you kick the ball, it was seen as, or is referred to as kicking the ball away. Whereas rugby is a strategic game, which involves tactical territorial dominance. So, uh, Kicking is an incredibly important aspect of the game. I thought it was really telling and Leinster played a game in very poor conditions against the Cheetahs at the weekend. And Kieran Frawley kicked extremely well. When uh, Harry Byrne came on, Harry kicked, I think, four, maybe five out of seven possessions. Just like, if I was balling, kicking it. It was very old school, out half, play the conditions rugby. It was, it was exactly the right thing to do. Now, the conditions weren't the same in that game as they were in uh, Ireland-Wells, but you cannot ignore kicking. You cannot denigrate kicking. You cannot refer to kicking as kicking the ball away. Sometimes you don't get possession back. That's okay. Sometimes you're deep in territory. You can force psychological and territorial pressure on them. Yeah, I think it's, it gets assigned as that, uh, kicking the ball away, because there is a lot of either... Very good fielding play by fullbacks these days, or just a lot of kind of aimless kicking where it's like it's a percentage to just put the ball away from a danger area. But I think one it could also be highlighted from the Irish game the excellence of uh, was it a, was it a couple of Conway's kicks? Certainly his his drilled kick he down the line with the outside of of uh, or the yeah it's kind of like with his instep I guess to to cut against the the mm. ball and then like have it. Also, I love that kick where it's like. You keep in the low trajectory because there's not many people who can catch it. There's no one in the in the catching space. Whereas, for example, I think Larmer put a, a kick through it in the full later on, where he sort of lobbed it into the wind, and it didn't need to be into the wind. Yeah. He could have just he just could have blasted it into the twenty two, see where it held up, and make them make a decision about where the ball goes out. Uh, anyway, the, the other thing I'd, I'd say about like the first of all, Ireland played much better than I thought Ireland were going to play. I thought Ireland were going to lose. So uh, And probably just pessimism, look, in hindsight of coming back from a bad World Cup, sticking up for Joe Schmidt in a way, like psychologically sort of going, I think Schmidt was a really good coach. I don't think the Ireland coaching ticket is as comprehensive as, as the previous one, the current one is. But I think I underestimated um, certainly Farrell and possibly all of the coaching ticket, right? So I think that in terms of work-ons, the mall, and then I think Ireland have to work harder to get back in when the ball is kicked to Ireland, 
So Owen Toolan wrote an article about this in the 42 that was very, very good, mm. very technical about like what the winger should do to come in close to the... So basically the winger who's the wide match should come in close to the fullback, assuming it's the fullback who receives it. The other guys who are working back should work, like the centres should work, or the flankers should work to give width. So like an X. Yeah, like an X. And so one comes in close to receive the pass or give an option, and one works to give width on the counter-attack. But just in general, Ireland are too slow to to work back. So particularly, like there was one where Wales like did a bit of a slower exit and then kicked on the left-hand side, Ireland's left-hand side, Larmer caught it. And the guys on the right-hand side are only getting back like after he's kicked. And they're, like, they're not breaking their bollocks. Like if Wales are on that side of the pitch in their own 22, like they're not, they're not going to change. They're not going to throw like a 15 and then a 20 meter pass, two 20 meter like passes of that length to change the direction in their own 22 on a windy day. So if you're on the right-hand side of, of the breakdown, drop back. And once they kick it, like break your bollocks to get back because it gives Larmer a passing option. As it is, Larmer always runs it back because no one's behind him or no one's available to to start counterattacking. Mm. So I, I sort of, previously I thought like that's Larmer's fault. Now I sort of think, no, like it's it's the other guy's fault. It's Aki, it's Henshaw, it's, it's Conway's. Like they should be really, really breaking it to get back there. Um, you said at the start that you thought our overall tactic was looked like one devised by a defence coach. How do you think we defended? I certainly felt there was a, a period at the end of the first half where we were very passive and you'd made a comment like two weeks ago where you said, you know, if the first two tackles, one of the first two tackles isn't dominant, then you're oh, soaking yeah. all the Rogers, way back. Rogers thing. Yeah. I, uh, I, thought we, I thought we defended pretty well. I, I thought our say. tackling was very good. I'm very impressed with Rob Herring's tackling and aggression. I thought, I thought again, like I thought Hendy and Furlong, both of whom we criticised here, both of whom I think had relatively poor World Cups for their ability. Like Hendy worked so was, hard yeah. and he absolutely emptied Alwyn Jones in early, like after about 10 yeah. minutes. And he Peter stole, Mann, he had a, great tackle stole a line Jones out from well. him. Um, Best I tackle think, I've ever seen him make. Savage I think there's a lot of duels. I think, so going back to like we were talking about Wales and talking about Pivak and is like you're sort of, const- like at international level, the players are better. So you're constrained by your, the players you have available. If Wales have Johnny Davis instead of Nick Tompkins, mm. they're miles more dangerous. And Liam, right? and Liam Williams. And if they have Liam Williams instead of Lee Halfpenny, they're miles more dangerous. You know, like that, that game of all of a sudden is very different with what uh, Ireland can do. With Ireland, Josh van der Fleer makes a lot of tackles, but like they're rarely uh, dominant tackles, to use like the phrase of the year. And Peter Omani is a bit like Wainwright. As a number six, he's just instinct he's just not instinctively a tackler. Whereas if you put in like Jerome Kano and uh Lydiot, they are like they want to make tackles. They want to get up to Mark Wilson or loads of Yeah, like they want to get want to get up to twenty tackles. Like they just instinctively like that that's what they play like. Right. So neither of Ireland's flankers are destructive tacklers. If I look. I, we haven't seen enough of Keelan Doris play, but like if if you've Levy and what you hope Keelan Doris is going to be like in your back row with CJ, Ireland are a different defensive beast. But I thought Ireland tackled very well and like defended well, worked hard, all that sort of stuff. Thunders in there. That'll knock the wind out of him. Referee blows for half time. 
So I guess we're not going to talk about England versus Scotland. Shit show. Um, we're going to do instead another 30 minutes on Leinster versus uh, Cheetahs. <laughs> <laughs> Rain dance. Um, England up next for Ireland. Uh, England puked home against Scotland in a, you know, bewilderingly bad conditions. Uh, but not a good game. And they lost their first match. They're missing Mako Vunapola. As of today. As of today. They're missing Billy Vunapola. Uh, they'll probably have Manu Tuilagi yeah. back. But there's, it seems like the general mood has turned away again from Eddie Jones, having been so, uh, having received such rightful acclaim for the performance against the All Blacks in the semi-final of the World Cup. Um, like I, I read Eddie Jones' me, book. No, I'm yeah. just going to just interject there. I read Eddie Jones's book and it's really interesting. It's really it's had an incredibly long and varied career. It's an extremely well-written book, Don McCray. It's the ghost, and it's well worth a read. And <clears throat> Eddie Jones projects uh, the appearance sometimes that he's always in charge. He's not always in charge. He gets he makes mistakes and gets things badly wrong. Sometimes he owns up to getting things wrong. For example, in the book, he says that he regrets saying, uh, making his comments about Sexton and Sexton's parents being worried about him. You know, he, he sometimes gets things wrong in his... In his public comments, and also sometimes he gets things wrong in his selection. For example, England's scrum halves are now both absolutely bereft of confidence. You drop Ben Youngs to bring in Willie Hines. Willie Hines had a stinker, including kicking the ball dead twice in one half, which is, you know, hard going. And then he brings back in Ben Youngs. Now, Ben Youngs doesn't feel, oh, I'm vindicated. He just got dropped. So he's got, he's only really got two scrum halves. He's dropped them both in the space of one game, which is a good goal. Um, he, he's determined to look at, he, he made this comment in his book about George Smith, where he just goes, he's just such an amazing rugby player. He is. And he, I would not, not that I disagree with that. I absolutely agree with this. But he, I can see, having read his book, that he sees the same in Tom Curry. That Tom Curry is to him, this is the English George Smith. That he can, and Tom Curry is a fucking hell of a rugby player. But the problem is that you're trying to replace a guy who is as good as the best number eight in the world most of the time, if he's not the actual best number eight in the world in Billy Vonapola, with a guy who isn't a number eight. You know, he can play number eight because he's fucking deadly playing mm. rugby. Mm-hmm. But. I don't think it's a good call. Like what England want is the dominator. Everyone wants a dominator. Well, I'm, I'm happy the dominator is not in the team. The dominator is not going to be the long-term English solution. But in terms of a short-term stopgap, when Billy Volapola is out, you get in this it's like play your play your best flankers on flanker rather yeah. than drafting in Courtney Laws, like who's a second row, or a Toje who's a second row. Yeah, and play the dominator. Play the dominator who gives you. You know, so who's the dominator? Don Brandt from Harlequins. That big, huge, really talented number eight. Like, he's really good. Nick Easter, Mark two. Right. Yeah. Okay. He's really good. So ben Clark, th- Mark three. No <laughs> <laughs> oh, great comment. So, I, I think with Eddie Jones, um, at the start of, before the Six Nations I kick off, I'd picked England to win the Grand Slam. 
uh, and one, yet another fantastic <laughs> prediction. I want to note that I had, I had back, I've backed France. Yeah, uh, and they look England look uh, short of confidence, a little bit directionless, genuinely directionless, uh, and they look half the team when they're missing uh, Billy Vonopola and Manu and Manu. But I think Billy's a bigger miss than than Manu. Yeah, Billy I, gets his hands on the ball. Like if you if you look at how often Billy touches the ball for a forward, it's really quite astounding. He yeah. regularly gets on the ball thirty times in a match. I, I differ because I think Manu all of England's first phase is is off Manu, and then they bring Billy in more and more. But like typically, he's in the wake. You know, when Manu's playing, Billy's more destructive because he's in the wake of Manu. True. So I think Manu's more important for but England. But you'll see Billy around the pitch in a lot of loose Oh, positions. yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? A bit like Billy Vodopolo is a brilliant player. Yeah. Like if I had to rank England's most important players, like one to five, it would be Manu one, Billy two, and then Atoje. No, then Farrell, then Atoje. Yeah, Atoje. And then, and then uh, Mako. Atoje isn't picking up the slack like Johnny I thought he would. Sorry? Johnny May is savage, but you can't you can have him ahead of Farrell. Um. Yeah. I told you isn't like I told you thing. Well, don't get me wrong, I'm a, I'm a big fan of him, but I thought he'd pick up the slack more with uh, with Billy there. I thought he'd get on the ball more, and it's as he did for the for the Lions in New Zealand. Do you remember how how often he got on the ball? He's not re- he didn't really do that against Scotland. And um, now maybe I'm speaking too soon. He'll have a massive game against Ireland with ball in hand, but I feel that that's something that they're missing. So England have had two away games. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they've been. Oh, they were close to coming back to France. They're, you know, game had gone on ten minutes longer. They would have yeah, won. Yeah, uh, and you know, they they could have lost. They could have lost both of them. They ended up winning one of them. Uh, I I don't really see their like away form in the Six Nations as being indicative of how they're going to be at Twickenham. It's a fair point. Um, They'd be a beast of a team at Twickenham. Yeah, even if the atmosphere is. Uh, I don't know what, what the atmosphere will be like. I think there's a good chance there might be protests about the uh, slashing of the championship budget. That's what it seems like. Um, but it's still it, heading it, into the home of Brexit, though. <laughs> <laughs> Our mutual wealth brings you a Brexit international. Um, would <clears throat> Would you expect any changes from Ireland going into that game? No. No. Uh, on the bench? Doris and said Deegan. And that's... I think Killer might come on earlier for Kane. Might even have a South African-style halftime swap. Um, but I don't see any other changes. I, I, I get, there's no really good reason to change a team after a really good performance like that. You're sort of, if you're, if you're changing to spice things up, you leave yourself a hostage for fortune. It's not I th- what I, good managers do to Will Bongo games. I think it's... Maybe you could argue Kelleher ahead of uh, Herring, despite me saying Herring. But you know, if you if you wanted to change one, that would be the change I'd make. But I don't. In in a similar vein, that I don't think Doris is going to start. I think starting somebody in Twickenham is like it's not. There's not a big upside to it. Like it's not baptism of fire. You might say baptism of fire. It's not <laughs> yeah. a very nice thing to do when you can start at home against England or start at home against sorry not England Scotland or against the Italians. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to starting away in Twickenham, like Jesus, start them in the home matches. Yeah, yeah. there's not a huge upside to it. Like it's very, you might play to the 
best of your abilities. And, and that would be a phenomenal achievement. But it's still an away game against England. You want okay. a load of experience on Two years ago, we went to Twickenham and we steamrolled England. Yeah. Probably, I feel... In the snow. Maybe got the rub of the green uh, on the first try. But like other than that, like uh, Jacob Stockdale having his uh, Anis Mirabilis. Aki standard, brilliant try. And just, yeah, just uh, blew them away and could have had more tries in that game. Um, arguably left stuff behind. Um, the English team isn't that different. The Irish team isn't that different two years later. They've had different experiences in between, obviously. So if, you know using your theory that we're going to reverse engineer a way to beat England from how their defence works, what's the way we go about it, uh, attacking England? Is it, is it to keep the ball away from their destructive ball carriers? Do we take them on up front? Do we play territory? What do we do? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, say, I, say that, I say that genuinely. I haven't, I haven't looked at England in the depth that I'd like to do. England defend differently. When Farrell was in charge of England, what England used to do was hide uh, Cole and like one of the second rows, or Cole and one of the, the like uh, one of the out like George Ford Ford on the blind side. So I what you did was Ford. what you do is you attack them on the blind side. Uh, I guess if you're going to attack England, you look to attack Ford. Mm. Um, like, do you take on Underhill and Curry in the same way that you took on Tipperick and? Palato. I think it's worth noting as well, just to go back to the quality of player that you're playing against. Ireland got turned over a few times running at Tipperick and Falate. And this goes down to the quality of player you're playing against. If you're playing against guys like a like test match animals, like guys that genuinely good, it's not always going to work. Like you can have a great idea and it'll, it'll just go wrong because the guys you're doing it against are too good. Yeah, they have Alwyn Jones. Like the last lads at Alwyn Jones, Toby Falate and Justin Dupere on their team. Yeah. You know, like they're fucking savage players. Same like Mara Toje. Underhill, Curry are savage. The Cruz is real good. Cruz is I don't know if they're going to take him, but Jamie they, George presume is really they will. Yeah. Um, oh, they have to. Yule didn't go well. Couldn't be Yule again. No. So, I look, look, I don't know. I, I, I can't give you a good answer. I'd imagine, though, that he will look to target some particular way that England, like the obvious one to attack is uh, Ford isn't a good tackler and Owen Farrell isn't that fast. He's not that slow either, but like he's... He's not a good tackler either. He's brave and physical. He's a fucking competitive bastard. Yeah. Oh yeah, not, no, I'm not saying that. He's not a good tackler. He's yeah. an unbelievable hitter. Yeah, yeah, hitter, absolutely. Yeah. But he, like, doesn't get, he doesn't get yellow carded. Deontay Wilder's not a good boxer, but he'd beat the fucking face off you. Like. <laughs> he wouldn't bet for you. <laughs> yeah. You see, I don't think there's any gain to be had in attacking Owen Farrell. None. I think that there's... Like, Oh, refs have proved they won't yellow card himself. Yeah. <laughs> Andy Farrell knows the English team defensively as well as anybody knows him, um, including Eddie Jones. You know what? Are, like Johnny May proved in the last the last Six Nations game against Ireland that he's actually really effective in the air. There's not an awful lot to be gained from competing with Johnny May in the air. Furbank, if he's selected at 15, which seems up in the air at the moment. They're looking at maybe selecting Elliot Taylor. I know Anthony Watson is not going to be available for a selection. Furbank is it's a very a very limited test experience. Now he's playing at home at HQ compared to playing on the road. Potentially he we could we could target him. Conway's Conway for a relatively short guy 
is sensationally good in the air. And an attacking team always has the advantage of being able to flap at the ball. If you flap at the ball, the rest of your team is coming back towards you. You haven't knocked it on, and the rest of the team, the rest of your team is behind the ball and coming onto it. Like it's such an advantage. There's no, there's no reason you should actually try and catch the ball as a chaser. Just get your hand on it and knock it backwards. Like it's, it gives you such a huge advantage over a catcher. So I think that's something which we might look at. And Sinkler Sink, is a very good tackler. If he if he starts with them a tight head, uh, Mako is very good, but he's missing. So they'll they'll have Genge or Marler, both of whom are deadly. Marler's Marler's not a, as good a tackler. As no, he's not as Mackler, good as any of Mako. Genge is actually better than uh, yeah. Genge is a good tackler. Yeah, as a rugby player, as a tackler, I think he's just coming to the time when he's going to take over from Marler. Okay, like he is a as a runner as well. Yeah, he's a tank. He's quick as well. I'm impressed by him. It's a very big ask for Ireland. And I think part of the thing with Farrell is, look, he's more impressive. Napoleon spoke about lucky generals. Hogg drops the ball over the line with no one, like, Near. not a finger on him. Big swing. And Hadley Parks drops the ball in the process of being tackling, but like, a, by what? Like a centimetre? Centimetre, is, yeah. is that an exaggeration? Like two centimetres, fine. No, it's a centimetre. Centimetre. A and that makes the game 1914. Now, Ireland were on top in that match but again like it, it's it's a change of momentum it's a so the lucky general is going he's basically got a free hit against England in Twickenham like if Ireland lose in Twickenham but like play well play positively give it a lash uh, his his ledger is still in credit yeah, and if Ireland and that's performance in Twickenham was getting absolutely eviscerated fucking ploughed out of it so I think, the only way is up. I think Ireland by a point, 16-15. Optimistic. Very. 